Welcome to episode 279 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters here in Los Angeles, a.k.a. The Kitchen Table. This week on the show, we're kicking off a three-part series we're calling XR Live Theater and VR. This involves an entirely different format for the show, and I'm really excited about what we've put together for you this time out. Um... I'm being joined by two co-hosts this time. Uh, one will be someone incredibly familiar to the show. That would be Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium. Uh Catherine's been the substitute host here on the podcast many a time, especially when she was back in New York and was our New York curator before she came out uh, to work on her master's um, here in Los Angeles. And we also have creative technologist and author Stephanie Riggs, uh, who wrote uh, The End of Storytelling, The Future of Narrative in the Storyplex. And Stephanie, you might remember from episode 274 when we were talking about the Fifth Wall Forum. And uh, that episode sort of acts as a prequel to this one because it's Stephanie, Catherine, and myself talking about this topic. Uh, But today we've pulled together kind of an all-star cast and... uh, Stephanie and Catherine each have a segment uh, and a panel that they've got, uh, and all the panels are going to face the same questions. And here's the order of battle. So after this cold open, uh, you're going to get Stephanie's segment, and she's got uh, Brendan Bradley, Tim Kashani, and Deirdre Lyons. And then after Stephanie, Catherine's got Marinda Botha, Beth Cates, and Ari Tarr. And then finally, my segment uh, is Dasha Kittredge, Brandon Powers, and S.B. Proctor. Uh, So we've got nine guests (laughs) and three hosts, and we're digging in. We kick things off today just talking about how these VR theater projects get off the ground. And the beautiful thing about the panels we've we've assembled is you have producers and actors and directors and technologists and designers, so you have to like all these different disciplines are being brought in. Uh, being no proscenium, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get probably a little theater heavy here. But this entire series and uh, for the for the next two weeks after this, we're, we're in this space. This is uh, about both simultaneously uh, uh, an introduction to these forms for people on maybe either side. If you're a VR person and want to understand how the theater part works, we hope we address that in here. If you're a theater person and you want to understand how the VR part works, again, we hope we address that in there, all while also trying to dig down into what the art is doing. So um, I hope you enjoy, uh, because we're going to be at this for a while, (laughs) Um, and starting um starting after this one uh where we're we're gonna spin up some stuff uh i'm looking at uh some options here uh for us getting some uh, direct listener feedback uh they'll be airing on the show uh that's gonna be a surprise to everyone listening because i haven't talked about that uh not necessarily for this series but uh for afterwards um although i guess we'll we'll drop it on, on the on the third episode we're gonna play around 
maybe we won't do it. Uh, there's a toy. There's a toy. There's a shiny toy I want to play with. Uh, all right. So before we get into it, uh, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do, and that would be to say hello to our latest backers, uh, Vanessa Calderon and Jason Shin. Thank you both for joining us. Um, the Patreon literally keeps us alive. And by us, I mean me. Um, we don't get a lot of money in, but what we do means we can keep on doing this. Uh, maybe, maybe it's even a fool's errand. It's important. It's like, oh, yeah, look, I can keep on doing it. Um, but, uh, it's, it's been really heartening to see that, uh, even with the bumps and bruises of the year we've had, that we've all had, uh, that we met, that we've managed to not lose the progress we made in 2019. Uh, still here in 2021. And I hope that as uh, sanity is restored across the land, that we are able to uh, start moving forward again, because there's a lot of exciting stuff to get into, um, both in the virtual realm and in the physical realm, once that becomes really possible again. So if you uh, like what you're hearing, if you like what we're doing at No Presidium and Everything Immersive, if you rely on that, please consider joining us at patreon.com slash no presidium. Uh, just $2 a month is all we ask for. And unlike a giant, giant, giant publication, your $2 makes a huge difference. You can also give more if you want, but um, I know how tough things are. So... Uh, the people who do give more and who really have our back are our sustaining backers. And they are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul F., Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all for being our rock. Now, before we get into the three segments for today, uh, if this is your first time at No Presidium, first off, apologies. It's always this kind of stumbly at the beginning because I don't write this stuff down. Uh, but it's a little tighter than usual, so because maybe I wrote a couple of things down. But uh, <laughs> uh, but we have, uh, as noted, 278 episodes. There are 278 episodes of this podcast uh, covering a variety of subjects. We talk to everyone from the folks at the ILM X Lab multiple times about Star Wars, because I'm a Star Wars obsessive, uh, to folks like uh, Brent Bushnell of 2-Bit Circus, and to uh, folks who are, uh, you know, working on, uh, you know, virtual installation art, and folks who are doing theater in their bathrooms. Uh, there's nowhere this show won't go for a good yarn. Uh, so if you are interested in all things immersive, I really encourage you to uh, stroll through our archives and uh, look for things that might catch your fancy. We also have our website, No Proscenium, and that's noproscenium.com, spelled just like this podcast is, and uh, that has all of our reviews and our features and news. And we are uh, in beta on a brand new searchable website for uh, show and event listings called everythingimmersive.com, uh, which aims to uh, present to you all everything immersive. And for those of you who are still on the Book of Faces, there is a group there also called Everything Immersive uh, that's uh, going on 10,000 strong from around the world, folks who are interested in both live and digital immersive experiences. So whether you're a creator or an enthusiast, there is something there for you as well. All right. On that note, uh, now that I've shown you around the place, 
let's sit down to a series of wonderful conversations. Hi, I'm Stephanie Riggs, and today I am here with Brendan Bradley. Hello, I'm Brendan Bradley, an actor and scrappy storyteller. And Deirdre Lyons. Hey there, I'm Deirdre Lyons, and I am a VR actor as well as a producer and stuff. And Tim Kashani. Hello, everybody. I'm Tim from Apples and Oranges Studios. Great to have you guys here. This is an incredible team. Um, Guys, let's talk about something very, very important, something that is this conversation around XR and live performance uh, comes to uh, into the zeitgeist. Uh, there's a lot of interest internationally, even uh, creatively and conceptually about XR live theater, but let's talk about the practicalities of this. How do you get a production off the ground? Like starting from the very beginning, you all have worked in various formats of XR live theatrical performances across different platforms. How do you get your teams together? It can be um, a challenge, but I, I would say, uh, you know, start starting with uh, people who are interested in telling a story that fits the world of VR. I mean, this, there are so many different um, challenges when you when you put a story into VR, things like how many people you can fit into instances, does the story serve the platform? So start with a, a story that uh, that will fit the platform and then find find your fellow teammates uh, that way. People are interested in telling that story. So let's say you found the team or you found the story and you're like, this is a story that has to be told and needs to be told. Um, in XR and live to a live audience, where do you get your team from on the tech side and on the acting side? For me, a a big part of it depends on what is the goal of doing this. If it is exploration and you're all going into it, realizing that there's not going to be a big check at the end of it, that is one approach versus if you are trying to turn it into some form of a commercial project project, who are those people that can put it at the level that you want it to be seen? And I've done every spectrum of, of the both. And you draw from people you've worked with because in this world, there will be technical difficulties as well as artistic difficulties. And especially once you go live in the XR realm, you are going to uncover any challenges that we face in our industry. <laughs> Right. Once you peel back the layers, it just goes deeper and deeper. (laughs) I mean, my mantra has always been just do the thing, make the thing. Like any project happens just because somebody decides to do it. Um, And I think like as an actor, I I definitely fell victim early in my career to waiting for permission. Right. Like, oh, I'm not allowed to do my thing until there's a thing. But in some ways, by just starting to do the thing, other people who are waiting for permission go, wait, are you doing a cool thing? I want to do a cool thing. And you kind of build your army. So instead of the cavalry coming, you kind of are the fake cavalry at first that then attracts all the others like, honey. Brendan, where did you get your start? Um, I got my start on stage theater. I produced a lot of really scrappy theater for a decade. And then I started producing digital content because I was like, oh, I think YouTube culture is just black box theater with a camera. And so then I spent like a decade doing weird digital stuff, which interfaced with a lot of different 
tech. And then in April, uh, those two communities collided and I pivoted to integrating all the digital filmmaking techniques to encourage quarantine theater makers to go beyond the Brady Bunch boxes of Zoom theater, which made me cry, and instead try to make like free tutorials and open source ubiquitous virtual tools to begin performing live theater. So I first started doing like, you know, muck style compositing like on Twitch gaming streams using more kind of like filters and layers of video and then really diving into uh, especially desktop VR that like anybody could show up and play or rehearse. And we started using um, these like Pico Neo 2 headsets that, you know, we could kind of send out to our actors in three different cities and host them on the same stage, which was just so cool to be able to like get back in the rehearsal room, even in the middle of COVID. I think what you say is about getting past the needing permission is so important that the technologies today, you know, if you, if you deep dive, whether it's into uh, unity or a game engine or, um, you know, a web VR platform that there, there are communities out there to help you learn it and to help you figure it out along the way. It's so true. I was so, just listening to uh, Brendan talking about the, the Calvary coming. Uh, I, I was doing Finding Pandora X with uh, Tim's lovely wife, Pamela, and I had a friend come to see one of the rehearsals and he, he'd been in VR for a good long time. And he thought, you know, I'd really like to do a production in VR for this Halloween season because nobody's doing anything and I love Halloween. And so he started and then some other people joined him and he kept talking about it. And then I was, I was, I was like, okay, well, I'll join you too. And then all of a sudden there was a whole group of us producing a project. So it did come about organically, just like Brendan said. Yeah. And, and dear, earlier you were talking about finding the story before you find the platform. How do you decide which platform to go on? Yeah, well, truly. I mean, there's there's several different platforms out there that are currently available to people to use social platforms like Altspace and VRChat and uh, uh, Facebook Horizons is coming as well as Mozilla Hubs and Gather.town and all these other things that you can do. Uh, or you can even build your own app and host it uh, that way. But of course, that that, that tends to get to be a much bigger project because you would need to host it on the Oculus store or the Steam store and what have you. But um, when looking at the the platforms, we chose VR chat because we were doing something horror-based and we wanted a, an avatar that could be manipulated fully that had legs. But I can see something like Altspace or Facebook Horizons or Mozilla Hubs being really great for, I guess, it, a sitcom, a comedy, maybe even a drama, just depends on what story you're telling. Yeah, that makes sense. Does it, it, does that change when you're going into this? Like if we were to look at this and say, okay, maybe I'm familiar with theatrical production, but I'm taking a leap into the XR side. And Tim, through Apples and Oranges, you've probably seen quite a bit of this where people are taking their traditional, um, structure and their logistical minds and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can do this on a different platform. Does that, does the pre-production plan need to change in order to be successful at creating and getting something off the ground? Like how do we get it? How do we get it right from the start? If I knew that answer, then I would probably be doing a another podcast on this. We we feel like we're inching closer to what it means to be getting it right. But what you hit is the key point, which is where 
are we in the process and why are we doing what we're doing? One of the values that we've seen, especially during this time, is early stage and development. As Brendan was mentioning, we've been using Zoom extensively. Most of it has been working very well, but you don't get that same kind of in-presence feel that you do get in XR. And looking at something like an alt space that you can spin up a world in less than a day, put people on stage and actually do things like blocking and having that sense of presence that is part of our storytelling world can move it ahead that much farther. Therefore, we always start with story, something that we all agree on. And then we look at where the story is in its developmental process and what type of feedback are we looking for. If it's very early stage, that's easy. I'm not going to spend months figuring out exactly what the costume should look like or what the set should look like. But if we're on the other end and we're now wanting to charge people to come in and experience this, we approach pre-production very similar to how we would approach pre-production for a Broadway show. The budget is smaller, but the process is very, very similar, which is collaborative amongst all of the creatives and figuring out how we we work tightly. And it you get both benefits and mostly benefits, but a few disadvantages in working virtually, the ability to collaborate in the space itself can almost exponentially increase what you can be doing in real time, which is a really cool add-on to our industry. I just want to echo that real fast in that I think that one of the biggest frustrations I have is that we use this word like new media as if it's brand new and we then think that everything has to be brand new. And in some ways, really just referring back to project management, which just breaking down a huge idea into actionable items and then finding the best team to execute on those items with a shared vision and culture. Like it really is that simple at the end of the day because you start to then identify the needs of your story instead of going, ah, this is all new and crazy and weird and I don't understand it. It's like, okay, well then what team members do you need to understand it and unpack it and serve story? I 100% agree with that. And adding in into that project management life cycle, just building in a, building in a little bit of R&D so that people can go out and explore, it helps them in their overall creative process. Let's look a little bit about what you just said, Tim, because that may, that brings up a question that is always asked of me, which is, well, what needs to change, right? I'm familiar with doing a theatrical production, um, whether it's a Broadway commercial venture or you know something that's maybe a little bit more artistic bent and not going for you know a, more of a commercial side, more non-commercial. But if I'm familiar with theater, can I just do the same thing when I'm building my production plan um, as in XR as I would in traditional theater? It depends. It depends on the type of production you're doing. If it is a solo play with one person standing up there, it's a lot that you can pull just from a, a one-person show. If it is a major musical with singing and dancing, it's not going to transpose in the same way because we run into things like latency issues that we don't run into in the real world. Therefore, you have to look back at the piece and that should dictate the avenues you go down 
rather than how unfortunately it's done sometimes where somebody comes to you and says, I really want to do a project in VR chat and here's what I want to do. And they haven't aligned the story with that first. Yeah. And Deirdre, from the acting side, you come up with an interesting challenge because in traditional theater, your audiences are sitting in seats and you're not necessarily expecting them to engage or have agency. Whereas um, in the XR live performance space, your audience are oftentimes asked to participate. Is that something that you bring into the rehearsal process? Uh, I actually was doing a lot of immersive theater prior to going into the underpresents and the rest of the VR work that I did. So I was quite familiar with, you know, the interactive interaction between audience and actors. And I that's that's one of the reasons that they hired immersive actors for the underpresents because we were interacting with the audience. And I think that this particular world, the VR world, is is beautifully situated for immersive VR theater because they are surrounded by this gorgeous world that no matter where they look, they can they are it, they it sort of creates that magic circle or the um, suspension of disbelief for you. And because of all of the low hanging fruit of you know gamers being in this world and already having headsets, or maybe it's social media being so prevalent in our society right now, everybody kind of wants to be involved. They want to be a part of the action. They don't usually want to sit back and just watch it. They don't want to be, it's less, uh, it's much more participatory than it is uh, passive. And if they wanted to do something passive, they could watch a movie or they can go and see something in VR that has seats. Because if you put seats in there and you make it look like a theater, people have a schema for that. They know that how they're supposed to behave, but you drop them into a world and then all of a sudden they feel like they're there they want to be a part of the story. So most of the stuff that I have done in VR has, and the most successful stuff has been uh, immersive theater derived. And it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. Certainly we have some crowd control issues. Uh, very, very rarely we have, you know, problem, uh, provo- agent provocateur sort of uh, audience members. But most of the time people are very excited to be a part of the show And I try to find in producing and then in uh, acting, I try to find ways to encourage that. Well, in acting, you're on the front lines, definitely, when it comes to um, responding to (laughs) what's happening uh, with your audience members, maybe not doing what they expected or plan to do. Um, Certainly, there are people that go in there intending to to either break the experience or, or pull it astray. But like, is that something that you can rehearse for? How do you rehearse for that? Uh, well, you most of it is improvisation and uh, and device theater techniques and crowd control techniques. Uh, like I said, for the most part, people are wanting to be there, so you have to give them the boundaries of the world. And if you're if you're giving them the boundaries of the world, they usually go, "Oh, okay, I'm not supposed to go that way. We're supposed to go that way." And you do it with encouragement. You do it by giving them attention and then changing the focus. And it usually works out just fine, just great. You go with it, you deal with what is, and then you move to the next section of the show. And if you do have it, it's very, very rare. And there are ways of dealing with that. Yeah, that makes me think of interaction design. There's so much of human-computer interaction, the HCI principles of how to guide people through an experience so that they are um, following the narrative journey that you went to without necessarily being heavy-handed or looking in the wrong direction. Have Has anybody worked with an interaction designer on their productions, and what's that experience been like? 
we have, and that is, I come from the computer science background, so it's part of the the nature of of what you do. And what I have found is, it's a lot of theory up front, but until you get into it, that's where you are learning. Just like in computer or game design, it's that user feedback. And circling back on that point specifically to what uh, Deirdre was saying is. Actors are amazing people, and I have heard people say, oh, I've, I've got to find an actor that already perfectly knows how to use Oculus Vive, whatever it is. And, and I actually say that they're shooting themselves in the foot because most actors have gotten to be where they are, especially if they're professional actors, because they know how to adapt to situations. So part of the interaction design that you want to build in is not just for the audience, but for the entire process, including your backstage, front stage. You look at it as a holistic experience because when you lean more towards the immersive side, that stage manager might be making an appearance at some point in the virtual world, just as when the audience members are crossing boundaries or thresholds or walls, they become part of the storytelling. When we do more of a proscenium-based story, that's where some of the more traditional, both Broadway as well as tech world modalities or models you can draw from, but it's still not uh, one size fits all by any means. I want to support all of that. Like I just nerded out to both Deirdre and Tim talking about that uh, as an actor, and I and I just always want to advocate this is that I, I'm an actor, and and in the last six months, I've started tinkering with a lot of these tools and technologies to that adaptability that Tim was describing, and also to the like feedback loop of learning how to explore more immersive interactions and more direct kind of audience interfacing, and I think that to that to that end, like. I think it's easy to hear a podcast or read an article and to think like, oh, those people have like a decade of experience I don't have, or they're ahead of me in some way. But realizing that we're all in real time exploring this and finding this together and that you're not behind. That like if you just started today and wanted to like dip your toe in this sandbox, there's room for you. There's a place for you. We need you and you're welcome. And that you might actually have the approach that none of us were thinking of because there's really no perfect solutions yet, which means there's no wrong answers. I just got goosebumps. I love it. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. So taking the flip side from the actor standpoint to maybe the technical standpoint, um, we talked about maybe some acting challenges, but what are some technical challenges that have come up repeatedly for you guys as you mount an XR theatrical production? Is there anything that's really jumped out as like, this consistently is happening and the more we know about this or look into this, like we the, the better productions we can make, better stories we can experience? Sound. <laughs> yeah, late, latency and sound and level of detail. Uh, we are racing simultaneously with technology as it's growing. And that's why following other industries like the gaming industry is is definitely our friend because we are pushing all of the technology boundaries in a great way and it's if you like stability this is not the realm to be playing in. 
<laughs> but if you like a challenge and you want to be a pioneer in a great way of defining an art form that is going to rapidly morph in the next one to 10 years, this is exactly the place to be. There's so many different places to explore too. So, you know, whether or not you have a headset, um, I think Deirdre had mentioned a couple different alt space um, and uh, VR chat and places like that. But looking into the headset side, because there aren't quite as many productions there, what's holding back the headset progress? I'd actually say it's not holding back in the same way that it did just even a year or two years ago, because I know we had Google Cardboard, but that was tough to really scale just because of the limitations. But being able to get a headset now for $300, we're doing something coming up in January, and we are just building that into the price of the production for the amount of people that we need to get into it versus we would have built in $3,000 three or four years ago. You bring up one of my favorite topics, but I did somebody else just have something to say before I dive into this because it's going to go sideways. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll jump in real fast, which is just to say I think what's also interesting about um, from a kind of headsetted perspective of that price point coming down and that community kind of meeting it um, also means that there's more opportunity than ever for partnership because in a lot of ways I remember my first like AAA video game doing motion capture I'm like I'm wearing like a million dollars I don't want to break anything and now it's like I've done motion capture in my living room and the the idea of the price point coming down means that we can take more risk which means that like I, I've had people like Pico Immersive just mail our actors' headsets just to play and try. And new partnerships can be formed because it's not like, oh, you broke the $10,000 thing and we only had a limited number of those. There is more ubiquity and more access just to being able to take those first steps or to try things that may not work. Um, or like or like Tim's saying, to be able to build that into the price structure of the experience so that that way you can put the technology in more hands. Yeah, I just go back to what you were saying about, you know, people feeling like, oh, no, I'm too late. No, 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 this is the tip of the spear. There are so many people in uh, VR right now that are accessible. You you text them or you email them or you find them on Twitter and you send them a message. Some of the, the you know, pioneers of this industry and they will they will answer you back and they will talk to you. And so there is there's more of a community feel in this in this industry right now than a competition feel. And so it is very, very open and welcoming to people who who are interested in getting involved. And we'd love to have more people get involved because there really isn't that many people doing things right now. I've only been doing VR since 2019. And yeah, Tim, I mean, I certainly didn't know I was not a gamer. I was an immersive theater actor and I was like, these controllers are just, oh my God. And, and eventually, you know, you get it, you start watching what looks good and what works and you, you adapt. And now that the Oculus has come out at $300, it's going into Christmas. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The interest is just heightened. It's like, it's been accelerated. So I think that with all of these things sort of coming into play, I think that the audience will grow and maybe it won't be, that it's, you know, the parent who wants to see the show didn't get the Oculus, but they got one for Christmas for their kid. And now they see that there's a show up that they can see by just using their kid's headset. They'll be like, oh, okay, I can actually see that. Now. <laughs> and now for the left turn. <laughs> you guys mentioned budgets. 
So yeah. let's talk about this. Who is investing this? When we go, when people go in investing, are they thinking of returns? Are they thinking of, you know, distributions? Who, where's this, where's this money coming from in order to create these productions? There, for me, there are three buckets that this works on. One is the R and D bucket, and can also be R and D of the show bucket, meaning that you're taking the same, or in many cases, less money than you would to do a reading or to do a lab. Another would be the professional industry bucket, meaning that this is an industrial for a large company that wants to create training or they want to create something that is emotionally connecting their people together. And some of my friends that are in this industry are making a good living in that industrial type line. And then the third is where we're talking about right now, which is figuring out how we take the work that we've done up until now and create a monetizable way to charge for tickets for people to experience. And people have been doing some amazing work in this, and we will tip to the point where we can get enough people in to where it becomes self-sustaining. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. I have a very non-sexy answer which is just that <laughs> the way I look at it, money is not the thing. Money is the thing that buys the thing. Um, and, you know, like I've never, I've never personally had like a huge grant or venture capital or like a development deal. So my unfair advantage is that I don't actually budget with money. I budget with labor. Um, and that allows me to really look at the team and start attaching the value to, A, how much can I shoulder and, and kind of R&D and develop on my own, um, you know, if I need like some C sharp written, you know, I can get a quote for how much it might cost, but just compare that to how many hours it would take for me to badly code it. But also it then allows, I think that in some ways where we missed some of the boat on the early digital um, kind of cinema side of things is that there was this incredible community that showed up to meet that moment and to start creating really unique narrative and non-narrative experiences using 2D video in a new way with the proliferation of DSLR cameras. And I think similarly, if we can in some ways make the early investors of the community and the workforce and the people who put in the sweat equity, allow them to be the beneficiaries of this market instead of just merely being a, a tech layer of basically the access of who can create the tools. If the people creating the toolkits and the workflows um, and the, the new devices and storytellings and new UI. I, I think in some ways there's opportunity to allow for um, kind of the IPO of a creative economy and a creative industry. Truly, it's not as hard to get into it and start producing as one would think. The, a lot of it is, is switching out your set designer and your, your set construction for a, a Unity person or, or your your costume designer for your avatars but there are there's a whole community of people out there that you can network with and meet or you can just you could get on fiverr or one of the other places where you can find freelancers who are willing to do something for you it's in a lot of ways a lot less expensive than putting something up in real life you don't have to rent space you don't have to buy buy sets or permits no storage costs no leases you can um, build a show and then leave it there in 
in the digital space and then come back to it a year later if you want. Once you have an asset, um, something, uh, it's a word for like a crop or like a building or what have you, you have it, you can repurpose it, you can use it multiple times. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot less expensive to do something in virtual reality than you ever could in real life. Thank you all. Thank you, Brendan and Deirdre and Tim for your insights your encouragement, um, and for a great discussion on how XR theater productions can get off the ground. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Persinium, and I'm delighted to have some wonderful guests on the podcast today talking about XR and theater. So today we have Beth Cates, I'm the creative director of Clingarn Studios and an XR theater designer and maker. I'm Miranda Bueta, I'm an actress and voice artist based in South Africa. I'm an actress in Alien Rescue, a feature-length VR experience, including live actors. And I also completed my master's degree in storytelling in VR. I'm Ari Tar. I'm the lead host and VR acting consultant for Adventure Lab, which is a VR escape room immersive theater experience. And I'm an XR content producer and founder. Amazing. And uh, we've got folks from different continents, different countries on the show today. This is so wonderful to kind of see this revolution of live performance happening right now uh, in XR for various reasons, some of them being the Oculus Quest 2, some of them being the pandemic. Um, but the first thing that I want to kind of bring the group together and really dig into is just, you know, there's a lot of people wondering, how do these productions get off the ground? What are the logistical challenges? What are the technical challenges? What are the financial issues? Um, if if I'm an actor and I've never been in a headset, where where do I start? Um, Ari, uh, why don't we kick off with you? Fantastic. I am so grateful that there has been so much momentum. It's been maybe been the only silver lining of the pandemic that there has been uh, a lot of movement in this scene. Um, and it's really exciting to see so much interest because when I started in translating immersive theater to VR about six years ago, uh, there was not a lot of tools in the space. And um, it, really the only way that you could get the funding to create the basic building blocks was going through uh, some kind of startup accelerator, which... Um, coming from the immersive theater world, I thought, hey, wow, this is all of a sudden this funding source. This makes so much more sense than the unreliable world of uh, theater production. Uh-uh. That's the, unfortunately the wrong answer. It is a lot <laughs> <No>. more unreliable. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of movement in the space since then. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful to work with the Adventure Lab team, which are former uh Pixar executives, as well as uh, co-founders of Oculus Story Studio and, and working with Google Spotlight Stories. And um, they have been able to amass um, something we'll probably hear about more of a Venn diagram between uh, film production and you know, theater production, as well as AAA game production and, um, you know, and, and other content studio uh, elements, which kind of make up the whole, the whole formula of, of what this is turning into. Marinda, what about you? How did you get started? How did you fall into this world? And what did it take to, you know, logistically just start acting in VR? 
Mm. So I stumbled across Jason Moore, who's the creator and director of the Meta Movie Project, um, via an article I read online. And I just love the whole concept and internet being a wonderful connection tool. I found him online and I emailed him and said I would love to be involved in his future productions. And um, I did an audition in a platform called High Fidelity, meaning um, he just asked me, oh, meet me in High Fidelity. And I just had to figure it out. And that was sort of part of his test to see if I can do it. Um, <laughs> Luckily, I already had the gear, uh, a VR headset, a tethered headset, um, and uh, because I was studying storytelling in VR at that stage, I had the gear so I could get in. Um, and then I had to meet with the rest of the cast because they were already busy with another production, um, The Heist. It was called The Heist on High Fidelity. And he invited me to, to in his words, please come and try and break things. So for my first audition, I had to try and make a good impression by trying to break things and be rude to all of the cast members in character. So that was my audition, and um, apparently he liked what he saw, so he invited me back for the, the following show, which was uh, Alien Rescue, uh, which is what we are busy rehearsing now on a different platform called Neos VR. But um, I could just answer your question a little bit about um, how to get into it from a non-technical perspective, what I know is you have to research different platforms and tools and decide where the home of your project is going to be, because that platform will dictate its unique needs and challenges. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you'd like to, to pass it on. There's so much to say about this. I Yeah, um, maybe we'll let Beth jump in here as well. Hi, yeah. Um, so... I came to this world too through my uh, my work in theater encompassed digital technology and early digital adopters. So all of these platforms, the the idea of VR, the idea of performing in VR, were were kind of all the always around my work as a projection designer and a video designer and a, uh, a, scene, a scenographer and a lighting designer. Um, and then about four years ago, I, I came to the University of Calgary in Canada to study VR and AR and live theater and figure out what they meant when we pushed them all together. So a lot of my work has been actually looking at um, both the creative challenges and the more logistical challenges. So how how to start up? And I would echo what Miranda says um, around researching these platforms and figuring out what the what the different affordances, the different flexibilities of the different platforms are. I think what has what um, a friend of mine calls them pandemitudinies. What the pa what the pandemic has revealed to us are the different ways we can connect on these platforms, which have happened primarily from a social perspective, but looking at them through a theater lens or performance lens, um, we can start to see the different ways we can use these. And so there's a really interesting uh, spherical way of creating now that like you look at platform X and you can make a particular kind of show around it or do we need to start to build bespoke platforms and and where there were serious financial limitations before um now with a you know a sort of typical scale theater 
budget, I can I can buy a bunch of headsets and distribute them around around the world ultimately and begin to make work, which becomes a really exciting possibility, a really, really exciting places to start. Yeah, let's let's talk more about platforms. Um, Ari, I know that Adventure Labs software is bespoke, but you've done stuff on other platforms. Uh, Beth, I think I've seen you do things in AltSpace and VR Chat. Marinda, you were talking about High Fidelity and Neos. Let's let's start to unpack this a little, especially for people who've never heard of any of these things. <laughs> um, so just to yeah, that's a great point. As you usually you need to break this down. So social VR platforms are really great at bringing people together and and there's a lot of software for recognizing you know who your friends are and also having content uh moderation so you can have a privacy bubble which so you can mute people for inappropriate content etc cetera, etc cetera. it's you know basically what any social media platform has to do uh but a lot more complicated um so those are the main problems those platforms are, are trying to solve and um luckily there are there are people there already. So you can have a project and invite people to come. And um, that's really great. The, the drawback is the platform isn't specifically designed to solve some of the problems that come along with hosting a live immersive show and bringing the performer and the audience members together. So there's a lot of um, workarounds that have to be done sometimes. Um, and I think maybe Marinda would, would know a little more about that. Um, I'm not that strong on the development side for VR. It's not really my forte, but I can uh, echo what you were saying that these platforms are usually developed by developers and for developers. And now suddenly with this, oh, uh, yes, you know? <laughs> or sure, they're or, not really. Yes, uh, for for gamers, for developers, for people who are maybe already experts at VR. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I remember going to both platforms that, that I just mentioned and, and having to figure out, and really, I'm not a, a technical person. I mean, I love technology, but I'm not, I'm very impatient. I just want the thing to work. Whatever, I, it must be plug and play, you know, and these <laughs> these platforms aren't like that, you know, it's, you need to watch a few mm -hmm. tutorials and, and feel like you're breaking something and go back in and try again. Um, so I think the, the onboarding for non-techie people is going to be really important for all of these platforms, and especially as um, immersive VR theater or whatever we're calling what, what we are doing, um, as it grows, that's going to become more important to get to grow audiences. We're going to be, have to expect that people are going, going to come into VR who, is, who have never done it before. And we need to be able to allow to accommodate that um, ignorance, if I can call it that, um, of the medium of, and of the platform. Yeah, and I would, um, to, to connect with that, um, oh my gosh, there's so much. So I, I have worked in all of these platforms. I was the world lighting designer and the live theatrical lighting designer for Finding Pandora X um, that was created by Akira Benzig at, at Double Eye Studios and performed at the, the Venice Biennale and, um, and a couple of times since then in private iterations. And that was um, both the technological side of which I, I am involved with and, uh, and the audience side. 
and bringing onboarding people and figuring out how to do that while also figuring out how to use, we used VR chat and how to use this social VR platform to get it to do what we as theater makers needed it to do while also taking care of our audiences. And that becomes a, a really tricky thing. And when you start to work across platforms, so I've done a show in VR chat, um, I've, I've done experiments and I'm about to do a show in Alt space. I'm also working um, in the same platform that had Jason Moore uses for Million Rescue for this Neos VR, and I, I just did a class in performance in there. And they're all so different, and they all have such different vocabularies, um, and they're all not built for 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 new audience members, for our traditional audience members, especially in theater, and, and that is a big piece that I think a lot of us who are interested in this space are also grappling with. How do we get our particularly like our new digital adopters um, into a helmet and then get them into the space and then get them into the show? And, uh, and how do we make that feel good, right? So that they're not intimidated and not scared and, and not put off by it. And that's, um, that's a big, that's a big piece of this puzzle for sure. Yeah, I think um, something that's really struck me, the more folks like you that I speak to is you're kind of, you're not just a performer, you're also this host or guide, but you're also tech support. So maybe um, you can talk a little bit more about dealing with all of those issues. Sure. Yeah, I could jump in there. Um, with like a, a social VR platform like VRChat, you're kind of pulling from the the the, I don't want to characterize it um, improperly, but there's a, there's a lot more folks from the gamer community who are very familiar with um, uh, how to navigate in VR. But with Adventure Lab, a lot of the people we get are first timers and it's designed around getting people who know each other um, to get in. And so a lot of times it's sort of a, a younger millennial who has, has been dabbling in VR will buy a headset for their parent or something. I've done a lot of shows like this and we'll, and we'll bring them in. And so not only are we sort of educating them about the world, but we're kind of teaching them how to get their VR legs for the very first time. And so very much so the, the onboarding of how to navigate in the world becomes part of the theater piece. Um, and so there, there's some really interesting techniques um, that, that I've, I've taken from immersive theater. Um, we, we also have, for Adventure Lab, Janine Willett from, from Third Rail Projects, who has a really uh, wonderful way of sort of staggering the learning um, that she's brought to the piece. And um, it becomes absolutely essential. And then, of course, you're on a networked platform. And so there are times where you are going to lose connection to your audience and you are physically thrown out of the equivalent of the theater and you have to wait for them to go back in and, and with with a lot of times when i'm when i'm doing immersive theater because it's so specific to the people that you have for your audience that night a lot of times interestingly glitches can add to the experience so you can really customize you know sometimes people say that that was their favorite part of the show um and what i've walked the, the edge of a lot especially starting in this early on is okay there's a certain point where coherence breaks down and there's a certain point where yes everyone we can establish rapport and we're rolling with these glitches and and we're figuring out ways to justify 
why they're happening and make up kind of new storylines around them. And that becomes a very unforgettable, very real human part of this piece that, that is the benefit for why live actors um, can really make this such a magical uh, new piece of theater and why um, AI and gaming can't quite match what a live actor can do. I think that's a, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I want to echo what, what Ari is saying. That's so true that with the live actors, you can really improvise and adapt when, when problems happen because there will be problems. There's always someone dropping out or your frame rate is super low. Uh, we had uh, we devised a new term in, in Alien Rescue for when the frame rate is so low, we're waiting for the world to upload or something. Then we say second skin stabilizing. Uh, because our characters in our show have this um, imaginary second skin that makes them breathe on the different planet. So we just call it that when, when uh, one of us, uh, then we know our frame rate is low or, or we're encountering some glitch. So, um, yeah, it's always interesting to see how you can work around whatever um, problem there is. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Beth, you, sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying... Oh, no, no. I, I think, um, I mean, you both hit on something really critical there in the, the why live, right? Because we, you know, we could, we could create a game, right? And but this live quality and, and these beautiful interactions that happen, I have um, a friend who came to see Pandora, Finding Pandora X, and the most impactful moments for him were those, were those scenes in both the technology and the performance and were when you know somebody couldn't couldn't sit down so the boat couldn't leave so the lead oh, character no. <laughs> needed to help that person to sit down and it became a group effort then and there was this real there was this collective piece that happened in the in people trying to help each other and then mm -hmm. and then like I had another friend who actually had to crawl in his room to try to get to the thing oh, that he needed no. to get to. And so there are these and was helped by by the helper characters or the main character and and those those live interactions that we're so familiar with, particularly in immersive theater, um, become really, really beautiful points of connecting with the audience and caretaking of the audience and and rely on on that beautiful actor skill to to take advantage of that moment and recognize the moment and, and leap into it. And that becomes a really exciting place because then when coupled with the magic of VR and with all the things that we're doing around and with the worlds, um, it becomes this expansive place to explore. What an amazing, I mean, all of these, right? Like could only happen in VR. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I think that's a pretty good stopping point and good segue into some of the other stuff that we're going to talk about in future segments. So um, I want to thank you all very much for discussing all of the different things that can go both right and wrong uh, while doing XR theater. Great. Thank you. Ple uh, big thank pleasure. You. Thanks so much. Hi there, it's Noah Nelson, the founder of No Persinium. With me for this segment are... 
Hello, everybody. My name is Espy. I'm the sound and new media artist. Hi, I am Dasha Kittredge. I am an immersive theater and virtual reality performer. Hi, I'm Brandon Powers. I'm a creative director and choreographer, creating work across virtual and physical spaces. All right. For this segment, we are focusing on how do XR theatrical productions get off the ground? And what I love about the the panel we have right now is everyone's coming in from like a slightly different angle uh, because I, I know everyone from different contexts and um, but everyone does kind of wonder, yeah, how do these things come together? Um, Espy, uh, I want to, I want to kick it over to you. You're, you're on a, a grant board over at Kaleidoscope with me. And so you get to see like all sorts of, you know, stuff come across you're on a couple of grant boards actually. So um, you can give us like the 50,000 foot view of what you've experienced in terms of, new projects coming together and getting off the ground in the first place. Sure. So um, I also um, would like to provide context for coming at it as a designer and also as a director. So as a director, um, you know, if I had to work with a producing team and getting together writers and actors to be able to put together the piece. As a sound designer, I've had to look at doing site visits and talking about how how sound can shape and amplify the world that we are in, while also looking at certain technical limitations, such as um, the types of sounds, the types of files, the number of cues, um, and also the parameters of the platforms that are in use. So, so really taking a look at like the, the the technical needs that 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 are the sort of the the, the obstacles from from the get go, um, but I'm yes. I'm I'm wondering like you know at that kind of like macro level because there's so many options that people face when they're trying to like jump in here. Is, is there is there kind of like a I don't know a, a path of least resistance for those who are trying to jump into this world? Well, yes. So there are, um, one of the first questions that um, you ask is what kind of platform you would like to have your production on. Um, Sometimes there are bespoke platforms where you build it specifically for that production. And then there are other existing platforms that you can then use whatever parameters, limitations they have to be able to create things. So when I was a sound designer for Finding Pandora X, and when I worked with um, director Kira Benzing, that production was in VR chat. And so when we were looking at the different types of worlds that were being built, um, the number of worlds, we looked at um, how to transition between spaces Um, You know, whether particular objects should have sound cues versus, you know, leaving that up to audience imagination and also, um, you know, just how things were mixed together. When I directed the Black Imagination series with Crux um, XR, we decided to move to a different social VR platform called Altspace. And so with that, um, we, you know, with that, we looked at the sound that can already exist within the environment, but not have 
um, not have any particular sound cues. So we weren't able to have a cueing system that could say, and now this sound would go and then this other sound can go followed by this one. You know, it was really like, here is the world that we've created. Here is the general ambience of that world. And maybe if there are sounds attached to particular objects, which we didn't do, but you know, if we decided to do that, that would be a thing. But in terms of uh, sound cues as they're used in a traditional play, we were limited from being able to do that. For those that decide to create a platform specifically for their production, you know, the, the difference is cost and being able to build something from the ground up, having to deal with, you know, the front end, back end, um, the aesthetics and, and whatnot. The upside of that though, is that there's a lot more freedom in terms of being able to, um, create, you know, literally whatever it is that you want, but at the same time, the cost and the time factor are pretty large. Brandon, I know you've worked in a couple of different platforms at this point uh, and, you know, delivered a, a few projects across the board. What's been your experience of of the, the affordances that the platform, the different platforms give you? And, and are you trying to, are you, are you searching for a holy grail, one thing that can give you everything? Yes, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I've been experimenting in both uh, VRChat and Altspace, as SB was talking about, and also had an opportunity to uh, experiment a little bit in Facebook Horizons as well as a part of their beta. And for me as a choreographer, uh, I'm really focused on this idea of embodiment and how we can create more healthy sense of embodiment inside virtual spaces. And for because of that, a key element is the legs. And that's something I often joke about with a lot of different people. And VR chat right now is the only thing that kind of gives you that full body, um, which I think is extremely important uh, to help audience members feel like they are fully present and able to move around. Uh, in a way that they might be more accustomed to. And so uh, as I've taught a class this past semester at NYU in the Brendan Bradley Integrative Technology Lab, we were using VRChat specifically because we were able to translate some movement work we were doing in Zoom directly into VR. And the students got to understand, okay, what does it mean to translate this movement into avatar form? How do then the avatars start to shift what we do uh, and so we had a lot of fun um, experimenting inside VRChat. I think things like Altspace I found allow for uh, a little bit more simplicity, which can be really useful. Uh, and, you know, the emojis I think people love to use inside uh, VRChat. And then Horizon, I've been uh, impressed with the just like the fidelity of the faces and the avatars and the way that uh, you can change the expression using some gesture. Like if you thumbs up, you can smile and vice versa if you're thumbing down. Uh, and I think there's just a lot of opportunity there as well as they continue to grow. I would just add that the other major difference that I'm finding, right, is that you can build in world in all space and in horizon, right? So we could all be in rehearsal together right now in one of those platforms and start to just design sets, design props and get a feel for the world we're trying to create, we can't do that inside VRChat. That takes a little bit more heavy lifting on the outside. So 
uh, it might be a little bit easier for folks just to feel like they're in a rehearsal room inside uh, alt space or horizon. There's there's so much to unpack in what you just said there. I, I want to get into the thing about the legs and the movement and translating. But first, I want to slide over to Dasha because Dasha is coming at this from uh, from a performer standpoint. And I know you've been working in uh, the Under Presents and the Under Presents Tempest. And you've been part of that process uh, since uh, the first LA audition. So I wonder if you could talk about it from from an acting standpoint, you know, what it takes to to bring this together and how that process of, of sort of learning a new craft or new aspect to the craft um, was for you. Yeah. Um, well, I feel lucky. I didn't know I was so lucky to have legs the whole time that I was learning VR. <laughs> but now having uh, dabbled in alt space and um, VR chat, I'm realizing that <clears throat> our system was very... Uh, it does make you feel very embodied. And I think it is true that having a full body is very important to feel like a, a whole a whole something, even if you're playing like a dragon or a, a creature or a, you know, inanimate object. Um, so it was very fascinating to, um, to learn it from scratch because I, I never really played video games. So even just kind of getting used to moving around with a controller uh, was something I had to learn from scratch. But um, I think uh, it took some time to kind of adapt the nuances of theatrical performance to VR because, you know, I'm usually using my eye contact in such a specific way in immersive theater that you have to kind of trickle that down throughout your whole body with puppeteering and avatar. And um, ours also, they haven't really truly figured out the whole eye contact eyeball thing uh, yet. In, I would say that in, uh, in alt space, they have a little bit of that eye contact thing going on where the eyeballs move around and then you can kind of lock eyes in a way. Um, and that also happens a little bit in... Uh, Mozilla hubs too when I was playing around in there so there's something special about what's now starting to happen with the detail of uh, the face and the eyes specifically but um, yeah I mean I, I I think you really have to learn your avatar because every avatar moves in a slightly different way it's been built in a slightly different way so getting in front of a virtual mirror and really seeing what works and what doesn't and kind of um, just exploring and experimenting with someone else um, is very important in the rehearsal process uh, because, you know, you could think that something looks cool. I play a cat uh, avatar named Vicky in The Under Presents. And initially I wanted to be like digging around, you know, like in the litter box or, you know, the, well, the whole, the whole under is, is sand. Um, so it's a big litter box. So I was leaning over and um, digging and I realized in some playback I, that it, the avatar kind of breaks and doesn't, it doesn't look as good as I thought it did. Um, and uh, so I had to kind of adapt my movement and, and lean only to a certain degree. And so this is something that you really have to kind of get to know. It's like a, it's like a, it's, a, it's like anything else. It's like a, it, it is alive in a certain way that you have to um, fill it out and all the way to the very ends of the fingertips understand how, because really the nuance makes all the difference when you're performing. Um, if you do something that starts to kind of look a little glitchy, 
it just kind of takes you out of the, it can take you out of the reality of what you are experiencing um, if there's a narrative journey happening. I want to circle back uh, to Brandon and, and pull SBN on this one real quick. Uh, Brandon, you were mentioning, you know, getting the legs in. And I know like the avatars in, in VR chat have legs. Um, but in, in my experience, because I'm running around just, you know, in a, in a, in a quest or, you know, in a tethered quest. Um, so I'm not, I know that there's affordances for full body tracking in VR chat, but was, was that what you were doing? And, and how common is, is that practice um, when it comes to the, the staged performances or we'll start there and then, and then bring SB in for a second. Cause I have a follow up on that. Sure. So all the experimenting I've been doing is without full body tracking suits of any kind. Okay. It's all just using the headset. And I think, uh, I, I think that what is possible inside VR chat with their body tracking system already is quite good. I know I might not be one of the only, I might one of the only people that thinks that, but it just allows you also to kind of take things a little bit slower and think about what your body is doing in every precise moment which I think is important for us all to think about as we are performing uh, inside VR. So when we're working in that space, um, I talk with folks about just being really specific about your weight and just where your head, the headset, the thing that is doing the tracking is in regards to your body, right? So you start to realize that, oh, if I shift my weight slightly towards the right, uh, my avatar will maybe take a slight step to the right, right? And vice also the same thing to the left, right? So once you start to really master the way that the tracking works, you can have a more um, clear understanding and sense of how to move your avatar. Uh, and that will shift with different avatars as well. SBS, you're directing folks. How are you approaching this this issue of the, the fidelity of, of embodiment inside the spaces? Well, I look at the... I look at the avatar as a, as a type of mask that you can be able to, you know, have, you know, have this, have this outward expression of who your character is. And also looking at specifically for alt space, because there isn't a full body tracking, um, that movement wise, the hands and the head are, the ways to be able to communicate and how many different ways can you use them to articulate what you're trying to express. I come from a physical theater background and so there's a wide range of expressions, emotions, feelings, stories that can come just from just from gesturing with with those two parts of your body. So working with actors to one, get comfortable in headsets, to look at the avatars of, as, a, as a type of mask, and then three, being able to find ways to articulate expression through those elements. And then specific to alt space, we also utilize the emoji expressions throughout the performance. For the actors, um, depending on the context, um, some scenes required, you know, some scenes would, we would encourage them to click on the emojis to 
have, you know, to have some kind of expression as they were, you know, as the characters are communicating, or if their character was, you know, off stage, then they could still be able to send up emojis based on whatever they're doing. Um, and then also just for, um, for more intimate moments to also, to also send those out. We realized that the audience did the same, that they also utilized the emojis throughout the performance that they would, you know, applaud in particular spaces or send up a sad face or hearts. And so part of it is also like the timing of how you're communicating, you know, giving space for people to be able to express themselves on how they're, how they're responding or even, you know, while everyone is, sending up laughing emojis like when when is the right time to jump in on that and then add to that or build on top of that or to to come in and pull it in the opposite direction so you know there's those things and and the expression of the voice is just so crucial because um as i as i believe dasha mentioned before the avatar is being able to lock eyes based on who is speaking and where, but there aren't any facial expressions. You know, it's a very neutral expression. You know, the eyes move and then the lips move when you speak, but there isn't any facial expressions of, you know, happiness or sadness. So a lot of what the audience comes to understand, like what emotions are are happening, come from how the voice is being utilized, how the hands and head are being articulated, and then also just based on the character and how they are expressing themselves. And and not even just like in terms of like, you know, regular, quote unquote, like regular clothes, but also some of the, you know, more like outlandish expressions, like being able to change the avatars, like hair color or to turn them blue. So all of these things how the characters express themselves. These are these are things that were very important in working with actors for the projects. Mm. It's definitely like Mask. I feel like it's so close to Mask. I studied a lot of Mask because I was so fascinated by it um, when I went to NYU. And um, it, it just translates so perfectly to uh, puppeteering an a avatar. Um, because of your face getting taken away and forcing everything down into the body. Um, it's a really, I think everyone who hasn't taken a mask class and wants to perform in VR should, because it's a really fun way to explore that. Um, and there are gonna, many different styles of masks too. I'm going to, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold you there on that one. Cause I think we'll, when we hit uh, the second segment of our recording session today, I want to take a deep dive into, into mask work. So a little preview for everyone, uh, for what you're going to listen to next week, uh, the way that your shows are rolling out. Uh, but before we get there, I want to, I want to take a, a, take a, a step, step back into, uh, probably the stuff that might be the, the least fun for all of us, which is talk about like the money part of it and how, how this stuff is coming together on that level. Like, Who's and and this is for the the whole table. Who's backing this stuff right now? Because there's 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 a kind of an emerging audience, but 
but this is a big gamble. So like where where are people finding like support for for projects and is that support enthusiastic? <laughs> Everyone's like crickets. No, yeah, no, I think that's just because it's it's truly the ultimate question, I think, right now. Yeah. And it's as I've been having these types of conversations, it is the one thing I feel like I'm talking about the most with folks. We're all trying to figure out together who is the audience, who wants to support, and what's the business model. You know, I'm finding that it's really fascinating that we need to create an entirely new business model that brings together both the live theatrical uh, business model with the game design business model. Neither one works just on its own, and we all need to learn from each other just as we do in all the other parts of the creation of this work. Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, David Liu, who's an amazing uh, leader and creator in this space, and he was talking about like, oh, how about if we support the artist this way? We want to pay them this way. And oh, what would you expect to um, be compensated as a maker of the piece? And I said, well, here's the union I'm a part of as a director and choreographer. Let's start there, right? And uh, he and other folks have no idea that there's some ways that we already um, create models around uh, profit sharing and things like that inside the theater world. So all of these questions need to be worked through. But uh, the big point that I'm trying to bring through with folks is that while, yes, it may be true that the folks who maybe traditionally go to the theater, quote unquote, don't own headsets at this time, there are a tremendous amount of people who do own headsets. And I think we need to stop uh, saying, hey, this is theater and say, this is just new, exciting experiences and make work for all of the cool folks that have headsets right now um, and understand that they are new theatrical audiences that people, companies, businesses, producers should get excited about bringing into the theater, whether that is folks like HP who supported Finding Pandora X, or it's folks like Oculus who supported Tempest. Um, you know, I think it'll show that these technology companies and then hopefully other folks as well will want to jump on board. You're, you're talking my language there with like, um, you know, not bringing up the T word. Oh, we're not doing theater. This is an experience. Here, come do it. And it's all theater people doing it. Exactly. Right? You know, um, you know, <laughs> where we've always been very good at tricking everybody into into getting some theater into their diet. So, um, SB, do you have do you have uh, any any insight here in terms of like who's who's jumping in and making this work possible in terms of um, the support level? Yeah. So um, for the Black Imagination series that was produced by Crux. And so they, you know, they're doing a series of experiments in VR. And so they reached out to me and asked if I would consider directing this project. So, you know, for that, I agreed. The other part I would say is that, you know, similar to what Brandon said, there are communities that exist inside inside these VR spaces. It may not be where we want it to be just yet. And it may not be, you know, as diverse and wide ranging as like we want it to be. But if we're being honest, neither is the theater. So, um, you know, it's kind of the same. But um, especially in social VR spaces, like Old Space and VR Chat and Rec Room and Horizons, you know, you have communities that are being formed there 
and those communities, you know, they go to events together, they have events together, they throw events. And so while it's not necessarily like here is a large corporation or a large organization that's funding this, um, you have, you know, spaces that already exist where people already gather and so with those things, you know, what can you, what can you use to create? Um, I feel like it's very similar to how theater rolls in, in the real world. You know, a lot of us are not, you know, we're not rich. We don't make a lot of money. We, you know, there's so much hours and so much work that goes in. And, you know, in terms of pay and stuff like that, it's not, you know, in terms of like how the tech industry operates on finances, it's very, it's like night and yeah. day. So, you know, I think on both ends, how theater is produced in the real world and then how theater can be produced in XR, there is a financial problem. But regardless of that, you know, it's, you know, how, how to be able to just, you know, at the end of the day to just be able to gather and to, to have things that doesn't discount, you know, the fact that these things should be supported, but just saying that it's not that different from how theater operates in the real yeah. world. Well, I think I think there's something there's some real wisdom to to noting that as communities form, they're going to gather, they're going to do the things that are inherently theatrical, and that's a space for folks of the theater tradition to come in and become part of those communities or, or help those communities learn all the, all the hard earned lessons that come with a bachelor of arts. In, in I laugh because I have one Brandon, go for it. And then we'll, we'll wrap on this for this segment. Sure. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly tag a couple things uh, uh, in response to what SB was saying. One is that, you know, folks are asking this question of like, who's doing it? How do I get involved? And I keep, trying to explain to folks and have for the past two years when I do these sessions at conferences and feel like I'm evangelizing all the time and say, hey, it is the Wild West right now. This is just the very beginning. And so you listener right now, you want to produce something like this? You want to make something like this? Just go do it. Like you are the person that can just go and make something happen. And uh, anyone who starts to make work in this space honestly, instantly becomes a leader in this space. Like, because of that's how few work there really is. Um, and that's my pitch always to theaters, um, because I say, hey, you want to be a, like so ahead of the curve and on the curve? Like, just let's go down this path right now. Um, and that's part of uh, what I started at Musical Theater Factory, uh, an artist service organization I'm an associate producer on. We started MTFXR, which is a program all about creating new musical theater in the XR landscape, right? So we want to be a part of this conversation. Um, we think that this question around access that SB was getting around and these models that we might fall into, we're trying to subvert them and make sure that we're creating a really more equitable landscape as we're moving forward in this new uh, industry that we're creating. Well, there's a hell of a lot to unpack uh, with, with all this. And I know I know this much just from the segment we've done uh, right now. I'm, I'm having you guys back on individually when we get a shot. But we got we to gotta make some room for the other panelists uh, for this episode. And then uh, we'll be back uh, in, in one week's time as we, we move on to uh, our next session. 
All right. So again, SB, Dasha, and Brandon, thank you all so much for joining us for this section. And uh, I can't wait to continue this conversation on in our lives in a few minutes. It was just a few minutes for us, but you, you're going to have to wait a week for our next episode, unless you're listening to this months from now, in which case, you know, just like smash that like and subscribe, fam. Ugh, I already feel bad that I did that. Okay. So, uh, like I said, uh, two more episodes in this series uh, are on their way. And uh, it's just, it's been exciting already this year. Uh, we're able to kind of kick things off with and, uh, you know, bring you to last week, in case you didn't catch it, episode 278, we were talking about Sundance's New Frontier and the online social space that's been made for the entire Sundance Film Festival. Uh, Shari Frilo, who is the um, chief curator of the New Frontier and one of the senior programmers at Sundance, was here along with the co-founder of Active Theory who are building out their the, that platform for the festival. Um, I'm, I'm going to go into plug mode again. There are 14 experiences in the New Frontier, ranging from live VR performances, the kind of thing we were talking about today, all the way to browser-based experiences. And uh, it's just a $25 pass. And no, you don't need VR to view everything in it, uh, VRs just sort of uh, the cherry on top. Uh, But you know what? I think a lot of you do have VR. I'm seeing more and more people logging in in my own friend groups. I mean, obviously that is a skewed, skewed sample, but we are seeing a lot of um, stats coming out uh, in terms of how many people have engaged with VR over the course of the past year. Is it still a niche market in the eyes of the giant tech industry? Uh, Yes, but so too were lots of things before they were ubiquitous. Um, And here at No Proscenium, we really believe in the power of immersive experiences and the immersive form of story making to, um, you know, change not just, um, not just how people make things, but change the kinds of things people want to see made. All right. That's enough for now, because this is a long episode. Uh, You're not getting a standard issue no rant. You're going to have to wait a few weeks, or maybe for those of you who missed them, maybe I'll do something uh, on the podcast feed. There are special things, I mean the Patreon feed, there are special things that happen on the Patreon feed that do not happen here on the regular podcast. Uh, uh, That's kind of of irregular, which is why we call that the irregular. Uh, And there's also our Discord community, which is a Patreon backer exclusive. Uh, So again, $2 a month gets you into the Patreon and connected you with all that, including for those of you who are listening during the day on Friday, uh, we have happy hour tonight. Uh, We're having happy hour every Friday night uh, in January and February, uh, starting on the Discord, we may play around with some other formats as well because there are lots and lots of different platforms to play with and lots of friends to play with as well. 
So on that note, I'm going to take us into the end of the show to the final plugs. Uh, once again, patreon.com slash no proscenium. It's how you back us and how you join us at these little uh, soirees we're doing. Uh, the music for no proscenium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Sidney Guillory, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Emily Gillette, Samuel Mystery, Brittany, and Elaine. You you can find uh, most of what we do at nopersinium.com and the rest of what we do at everythingimmersive.com. Um, don't ask me why. It's just how I am. Uh, <laughs> you can uh, reach us if you have any uh, questions, concerns, uh, or if you have work that you want to have us cover. Uh, if you're looking to get a show listed in the newsletters or on the website, uh, go through the process at everythingimmersive.com. If you're requesting coverage for a show or for a VR experience, because uh, we're totally equipped to do those these days in a real, real way. You want you want us to tour your VR chat world? We will come tour your VR chat world. Uh, you can hit us up at pitches at noproscenium.com. Uh, and also you can find us on Facebook uh, in the Everything Immersive group and at no proscenium uh, or at no underscore proscenium on most of your major social media platforms. The underscore one is for Instagram, by the way, um, which will get hopping again one day when, when live things are possible. All right, that's it. That's enough for us. May you have a wonderful weekend. And as always, thank you for wearing the mask. Thank you.